HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider. And I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is broadcasting from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, So today we are going to talk about the Northeast Sustainable Agricultural Working Group, or is it Agriculture Working Group? We'll find out in a minute. Uh, My guests, I have two of them today. My guests are Tracy Lerman, the Executive Director of NISOG, as we like to call it. Tracy provides vision, strategy, and support for NISOG's organizational direction and programs. She also oversees the planning of the It Takes a Region conference, which is essentially the reason for this uh, interview, because I want to publicize what's going on uh, with this excellent group. Uh, Previously, Tracy was NISOG's communications and conference manager. She's worked in the sustainable agricultural movement since 2003 as an organizer policy advocate and researcher. She previously worked at the Organic Farming Research Foundation as the national organizer mobilizing organic farmers on federal policy issues and as a project consultant for Hudson Valley-based food and farming organizations. My other guest is Angela Davis, the director of the Division of Food and Nutrition for the Jersey City Department of Health and Human Services. Before coming to the Department of Health and Human Services in January of 2017, she spent nearly a decade managing two nutrition education programs for Just Food, a food justice nonprofit based in New York City. Angela has more than 20 years of program management, education, and public relations experience. Throughout her career, she has served a variety of institutions, including the Service Employees International Union Local 32BJ, the National Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, and the Children's Defense Fund. Tracy, if we went back through our respective Rolodexes, I bet we have so many friends in common, thanks to all of the places that you've worked and all of the people I've interviewed. It's kind of crazy. So, ladies, we're here to talk about the Northeast Sustainable Agricultural Working Group. Tracy, I want you to be the one who introduces NISOG, and then I want you both to talk about the conference, uh, sort of how you work together and what the conference has brought to uh, Jersey City. Sure. Uh, This is Tracy. I'll go ahead and kick that piece off. So NISOG, the Northeast Sustainable Agriculture Working Group, not agricultural, although good question, 
is a 27-year-old organization that serves to convene farm and food systems practitioners in service of building the movement for a sustainable and just food system. We cover 12 states in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, and we have three major programs. Our conference, which is our oldest program and probably what we're best known for. We do policy advocacy, both federal policy advocacy, and we're starting to dabble a little bit into state policy advocacy. And then we provide information and resources and a platform for farm and food systems practitioners to share their work. Those are, those are our main programs. We occasionally do shorter one-off projects where time capacity and expertise feels appropriate to us. And tell us about the, the conference. Like, why, why sure. is this such a big deal? So the conference, like I said, um, is our program that we're best known for, and it's been around for 26 years. I think we had to cancel during wow. Hurricane Sandy, <laughs> but we've managed to pull it together on a uh, very tiny staff uh, for the past uh, almost more than two and a half decades. And the conference is really a space for folks who work in the sustainable farm and food systems movement beyond just their own personal lifestyle choices to come together and share ideas, have important conversations, learn from each other, form uh, partnerships. And the reason why we feel that it's so important to convene this kind of a space is because the farm and food systems movement is really broad and diverse. It's not just agriculture. It's not just food access. It spans those two points and everything in between. And because it's so broad, people really work in their own silos and don't often engage with each other. And sometimes they're at odds with each other, whether or not those are real or manufactured differences, they exist. And so having a space where folks can come together is critical because the whole food system needs to kind of move more or less together, not in lockstep, certainly, but we can't change agriculture if we don't change people's consumption habits, if we don't right. change the distribution system. We've all got to be kind of working together on this. And so the conference offers a space for people working across the system to share ideas from their respective work and to find ways to collaborate across sectors and across geographies. Right, right. And Angela, what does this conference bring to Jersey City? Why, why is it important for you particularly? Well, this is the first time this conference will be happening in uh, New Jersey, which we're excited about. Um, yeah. For many years, the conference kind of moved around. Um, or actually, it was in one place, actually, in Saratoga Springs, and then it started moving around. Um, so it's, um, we're excited to have it here as an opportunity to kind of help build more food systems work here in um, the Jersey City area, as well as in Newark, um, in northern New Jersey. Um, we don't to be honest, have a lot of this happening. A lot of the food systems work here is focused more on food uh, food rescue, food pantry. So we're hoping to kind of help people have a broader perspective um, on food systems and supporting our local food system and getting um, best practice from other parts of the region. Um, so we're excited about that opportunity. Absolutely. New Jersey people, I'm sure most people who are listening realize New Jersey is a major agricultural uh, producer for the United States. Um, you've got huge fruit and vegetables going on. And what else does New Jersey contribute to our food basket? I mean, I would pretty much say everything, you know, blueberries, cranberries, everything. You know, Jersey's that's why it's definitely that's why it's called the Garden State. Right. Uh, so there's uh, definitely, you know, a lot of, um, you know, local farmers here um, that are doing, you know, a lot of great work to um, keep everyone um, eating, being healthy. Right, right. Um, so, ladies, here's a nice, big, broad question for you, but it, it sort of it goes to the purpose of your conference. What what do you see as your vision for the American food system? What do you think needs to be fixed or what do you think needs to uh, be? Yeah, I guess fixed. I mean, everybody talks about your broken food system. And in some ways, I understand that. 
And in other ways, I always think to myself, having been doing this radio program for a decade now, it's like we have an incredibly high functioning food system. It just doesn't function the way we want it to, or it doesn't provide the food we think it should um, because it's, you know, focused on cheap calories and cheap prices. And that's not necessarily best for public health, but it does function brilliantly. So what would you what would you do to change that and how would you do it? Well, I can start since I can bring the regional picture in, and Angela's work is more specific to northern New Jersey. Um, and okay. I think you said it really well, Katie. Yeah, the food system is not actually broken. It's working very well for the goals that uh, are laid out for it. Like you said, for getting cheap calories out there and also for serving um, a capitalist profit-driven agenda. But in terms of meeting the needs of um, the environment, uh, protecting cultural survival, ensuring that small and mid-sized farmers are able to remain economically viable, provide living wage, non-exploitative jobs for farm workers and other workers in the food system, uh, support rural economic viability, support access to food for all people, regardless of income. It's not really working. I think in, in those respects, if you put those as the goalposts right. for the food system, it definitely is broken. And in terms, since we're talking vision, you didn't ask for the strategic work plan, which you could probably do many shows on and mm. still not cover all of that. But in terms of vision, and my language that I use for the vision probably changes on an hourly basis, <laughs> but our vision, um, NISOG's vision is for a sustainable, just, resilient, culturally diverse food system that protects the environment and all those who rely on it. And I want to underscore the vision that I just laid out by saying that NISOG's board and staff officially committed at our board staff retreat earlier this year to center our work around those most harmed by food systems injustices. So we are really prioritizing and focusing on equity and racial justice in the food system. It just feels that that is critically important right now. And that's not to say other aspects of food system reform aren't important, but I don't think I need to say to either of you or most likely to your listeners that we're in a very particular moment right now where it just feels like those of us who want to see social racial justice happen really need to be shouting that from the mountaintops. So we have decided to shout that from our mountaintop <laughs> and um, to, to really focus on that. We're a very small organization. We have a small budget. And so this is what we're choosing to focus on. So our vision is really rooted in racial justice and really rooted in equity. And um, that's where we are orienting ourselves in the years to come. And, what, and Angela, what, what would you see, like if you could wave your magic wand, what would the system look like from, from your perspective as somebody who works in health and human services in, a, in state and local government? Yeah, I would definitely have to, I mean, agree with, you know, a lot of, you know, ditto <laughs> to what uh, Tracy was saying um, in terms of, you know, how I feel that we, we should be moving our food system um, forward um, here at the um, Department of Health and Human Services. So we have a dis we have a division of food and nutrition, which I'm the director of, um, and we've had a vision of, you know, basically working to, you know, really increase c consumption of healthier foods um, in Jersey City um, and also definitely making sure that people have access to the food that is, um, you know, affordable as well as culturally um, appropriate or rooted um, and then wanting to support our local food system as part of that. Um, and we do that through, you know, a number of different programs that we have here um, in terms of we support a lot of the federally funded food programs, which are just, you know, kind of at the level of like just basic food security, right? We have all these, you know, the government puts, you know, money out each year for these different programs. So we help, you know, support those programs and try to get them utilized um, as much as possible. And all of them are actually underutilized. So we run the Meals on Wheels program and our senior lunch program um, and our, we have a WIC uh, 
clinic, which is women, infants, and children, um, as well as um, our summer meals program. So those are just like basic things. And our larger vision, right, is that people actually, I would say, have, you know, our, which is a larger systems issue, but that people are like, that there's other systems changes in terms of how much um, income people are making. So they actually can afford to purchase their, um, their, um, their own food um, and support the local food system in a, you know, a broader level. So it's sort of, so I think that's another issue too, that sort of comes into all this work is that, you know, issues of like, you know, how much people are being compensated, good jobs, you know, minimum wage or living wages that also plays into the food system as well. Um, People aren't earning enough money. You know, we have the different government programs to support that. And we, want people to utilize those programs and take advantage of them. Um, but then also we have to uh, work on a broader vision of, um, you know, more, um, you know, economic opportunities um, so that people can, you know, there's a sort of different levels of, of, of support that need to happen. So, for example, because farmers, you know, oftentimes this issue comes up where people are like, the food, do, you know, farmers markets are very expensive. I hear people yeah. say that. Um, and, and I try to emphasize to people that most farmers are not charging. They're charging like the minimum they need to actually like you know, make a living. Sometimes they're not even charging that because they kind of know what the market will bear. Um, so it's not a, a, a situation where the farmers needed to, to charge less. More people need to make more money so that we can all um, be able to support our farmers and support our local food system. And then we have, and you can also look at other issues of how the government needs to kind of, you know, probably on the federal level, right, we subsidize, you know, larger, you know, farms um, that are producing, you know, these different commodity crops and how can we have different government policies that support smaller farmers um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the crops that they grow and, um, and doing more diversified um, growing. Right. Right. Good answer. Very good. Um, what do you see, uh, I guess, Tracy first, what do you see as the biggest challenge to your vision of an improved system? Say, you know, everything happened the way Angela just described where, uh, you know, legislation was passed and uh, small and medium sized farms were better supported and uh, people got paid more money so they could buy uh, at the prices that actually, uh, you know, are what co- what the actual costs for things instead of the subsidized prices that we get in the supermarket for many, uh, many products and so forth. Um, so what what would be the challenges? Would you say it was uh, public education? Would you say it was uh, the fact that uh, people uh, are very focused on cheap food or they don't want to have uh, they don't want to have to make their own food or um, I don't know what you know, besides the low wage, what other barriers do you see towards creating a more just and equitable system? Yeah, it's a big question. I mean, I do I think know. income inequality. <laughs> <It's something like laughs> that. I do think income inequality is a huge piece of why we don't have a um, uh, an equitable food system, and not just income yeah. inequality on an individual level. I think under resourced communities, historically under resourced and marginalized communities, the way that we have used land or misused land, in my opinion, to create um, our communities, I think has a big part of, is a big part of the reason why we have the food system we have today. Um, I, for example, cannot get to a grocery store unless I get in my car and drive to one. I don't even have the ability to bike to it because it would involve me risking my life on high speed roads that I just don't want to ride my bike. (laughs) And I live in, I live in a a small city in upstate New York. It's not like I live on Long Island or in a densely populated suburb. So Mm -hmm. we've planned communities around the car and not with food access even in mind, let alone food production. And we've really removed people from a connection to the land and to food. And we set up our society in a way where people work really long hours. They don't have the time during the day to cook foods that would be nourishing and healthy for them. And we've made cheap uh calorie-filled, non-nutritious food so easily accessible. So I feel like even if people want to eat healthy, there's so many barriers put in their way to do that. Um, So, 
you know, I think other societies do a much better job of centering food and in making food not just something that we put in our bodies so that we can continue just doing our work or just being able to have fuel for the day, but actually it's a cultural ritualistic experience in other cultures. And it's really, we've really lost that in, in the United States. And then um, I think racism, regardless, I mean, racism and economic inequality, as you know, are very interconnected, but even racism alone, I think is a, is a major barrier in having the kind of food system that we're envisioning. We expect people to conform to white cultural standards, which can take them away from culturally significant foods. Um, and um, I think that's, that's really sad because culture and food are also really inextricably linked together. And if you don't have a cultural aspect to your food, then, you know, what are, what are you eating? You're just eating calories that provide you the nutrients that you need. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think I will leave it. Well, no, I want to add one more thing, which is, uh, (laughs) land access, um, for, for farmers. I think we could rely on other people in other countries to grow our food for us. And in some ways, we're never going to get rid of that link. I don't think anyone is giving up their chocolate or coffee or banana addiction anytime soon or coconut. I mean, coconut is very popular in kind of left-leaning progressive circles. And nobody's, myself included, as I stare at a bag of chocolate chips on my desk right now because our conference is this week, so it's gone down to the chocolate chip diet. Um, But um, nobody's giving that up anytime soon. But if we don't produce the food that we are able to produce locally, then we're going to not ever really understand what what is needed to grow food. We're not going to have that connection to our food. And accessing land for farmers is a huge challenge. And the thing is, is that some farmers, I mean, we could adjust, we could fix income inequality and still have land access be a huge barrier in our food system that perpetuates the problems that we're talking about right now. Because um, a lot of at least the young farmers I know, if they have access to other jobs that are fulfilling, that are getting paid, what they need to make. Maybe some of them would go off and do that, but other people just want to farm because they realize how critical of a need it is for our food system. So if we don't make land more affordable and we don't prioritize agriculture as an important use of our land and something that communities need to see, something that's visible, then we're not going to fix the food system. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. 
our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Angela, what what would you say uh, <clears throat> would be the, um, you know, what you need to do in an urban? Let's let's talk, let's narrow the focus for you and say right. in an urban setting, what would be the fix? Like, what do you see as the most important challenge to address um, besides in, income inequality? Let's put that aside for a second. That's a given. But say in Jersey City, how would you change the food system to better serve your community besides raising minimum wage? Well, I think we're definitely disconnected from, you know, our food. We're disconnected from the land. So we're not we, we were disconnected from like how our food grows, how it's prepared. Um, you know, we're probably maybe like two generations where people don't really know how to cook food for themselves. Um, that's what yes. I spent a lot of time doing for the last uh, 10 years before coming here is just trying to, you know, do more education, you know, so people know like how to prepare food, you know, how to store food properly. Um, and that's a bis- bis- big disconnect because we don't teach, you know, quote unquote home economics anymore in our schools. So we don't really know how to cook for ourselves, whether you're, no matter what you, where you are on the income spectrum, um, I feel that people, you know, we, you can see that people are relying a lot on prepared foods, whether, you know, it's like McDonald's or the prepared foods bar at Whole Foods, right? People aren't really right. cooking for themselves. Um, part of that is education related. You know, part of it is a time related as well. Um, we all just get, you know, get, we're working a lot compared to in the past, we don't have a, a structure that supports, you know, someone, you know, whether it be, you know, one partner, or, you know, being able to be home and cook food for, for the family. Um, so that's, I think, a, a big issue. Um, and then just basically you know, knowing how to grow food, even in your urban setting, being able to grow our own food, you know, is, a, is, an, is an issue. We're, we're, um, we're not able to, to do that, you know, having... I mean, many areas we don't have necessarily as much access to have a little backyard to you may have your own little garden or what have you. We have a little bit more of that in Jersey City than I would say, say, like in New York. But we do have community gardens and there's a lot of community gardens in New York City. Yeah. And I was just talking to my mom last weekend and she was saying, yeah, when she grew up, not in an urban area, but it was a little bit rural, small town. But everyone grew their own food, like everyone had their own garden. And she yeah. said, well, we just got food. And this is just one generation. We just got food for like, you know, rice and flour. But everyone had their own garden and their um, when she was growing up. And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> so yeah. we're, you know, th- that, that kind of, you know, just one generation ago, we were everyone had their own gardens and knew about, you know, growing food and, you know, Killing canning, a chicken, preserving. things like that, canning, you know, um, eggs and, you know, growing your own, um, you know, raising your own, you know, like small animals and what have yeah. you. So right. we're very disconnected from that. Children oftentimes don't know where food comes from. They think it comes from the grocery store um, and get different kinds of fruits and vegetables mixed up if you ask them to identify them. So we um, or people don't know how to, like, you know, butcher a chicken, you know, which isn't, you know, it's just a small animal. So um, those kinds of things, I think. And then that culture also like creates a situation where we're kind of disconnected from like how to prepare it or how much the cost might be, which kind of can go into some affordability issues, right? Because every time you ask a, um, a, a, you know, some, anytime there's any processing done to food, it's going to be more expensive, right? So if you bought a whole chicken, that's less expensive than when you buy chicken breasts, right? But people don't necessarily know how to cut up their own chicken to do that. Um, Or, you know, people, you know, I go to the farmer's market, you often see people like telling them to go cut off the beet greens. I'm like, no, those are, that's food, (laughs) you know? So we're, um, so those kinds of things um, I think are that food education is so important. It needs to be deeply ingrained into our, you know, uh, right from the beginning when, you know, children are in kindergarten and throughout their schooling, they're learning about how to, you know, to, um, to cook food, to grow food. Um, Cause I think that would actually help make that cultural shift that also needs to happen um, with our food system where we you know, yeah, value I think that's food very like challenging. we used to in the past. I got to say, I mean, yeah. I, I want to move <laughs> on here, yeah, but I, I, you know, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I'm also going to say that it's not, 
there, I'm not hearing any new ideas, which makes me um, disturbed. So let's talk a little bit about politics and how politics has an impact on food systems. So um, what? how much work do you do either on, a, well, I guess you're both like more, would be more connected to fed, uh, to state and local government rather than federal government. But what? how much are you able to work with uh, legislators in your respective um, areas who are uh, sufficiently educated about uh, food system failures to even understand that there is a problem and that it needs uh, some, you know, creative thinking to address. Um, Angela, you're in the city, you're within, or, you know, you work within the government administration. Mm -hmm. How hard is it for you to convey, uh, you know, some of these concepts, uh, such as increasing education in the school system or bringing back home ec or supporting uh, urban agriculture? Is that is that an uphill battle for you, or do you feel like legislators are more open to that and more open to voting funding for it? And then, Tracy, you you can answer the same question when she's done. Sure. Yes, I mean, in Jersey City, our uh, mayor Stephen Phillip is very supportive of um, you know making changes in the food system and making access to healthy um, and uh, affordable food um, throughout the city. Um, so we've been he's been very supportive. Like right now, we're in the process of um, we're going to be building vertical farms in about ten municipal buildings um, and the combination of municipal buildings, some senior centers, um, and then probably a couple of schools. So that's going to be uh, an opportunity for people to see how one way that food is being grown and also increase access. So he's been very supportive uh, of that, our city council as well. Um, I think w where th there can be challenges, which is to some things, is, for example, with our federally funded food programs, you know, Increasing the, the the quality of the food um, is 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 a challenge. You have to change different kinds of procurement policies to do that. Um, so that sort of can be a little bit of a slow road. Um, recently, we had a situation where when I came in, our our senior food, we wanted to sort of change what was offered and not just go by lowest bid. So that's actually what happens in schools. Um, sure. Any kind of um, you know where the government is purchasing the the, um, the food is it's, it's a you know it's a lowest bid type of situation. So we've been trying to change that throughout the different programs that we have um, so that we can kind of get better quality food to our, um, our um, residents throughout Jersey City. Um, we also have been trying to work with um, different businesses to get them to offer healthier food options. We have a healthy corner store initiative, which our mayor and city council and assembly, um, state assembly people have been very supportive of. Um, so just trying to like make those changes. So I think we're, we have a lot of support on the local level as well as on the state level. Um, but some of those, the systems still are just a little bit hard to change. You've got to kind of go through and and get those old policies um, taken out, which which takes a little bit of time. So we're we're definitely working on it um, and are committed to making those changes happen. Yeah, right. And so Tracy, what about you? Like, how does NISOG work with uh, legislators uh, throughout the twelve states that you uh, represent? Um, how are are you able to have any impact on how funding is voted in terms of say? Uh, supporting, you know, small and medium-sized farmers or small dairy operations or added value opportunities or production aggregation facilities, you know, the kind of stuff, the sort of nitty-gritty nuts and bolts uh, infrastructure that's really necessary to re-regionalize a food system. How do you see that playing out in the Northeast region? Yeah, so we have a policy program. We have a policy manager who focuses on the five mid-Atlantic states in our region. And the reason why we chose that is because, well, that was the funding that we received. And I'm sure <laughs> you know that so much of this work is dependent on the goodwill of philanthropy and what they're interested in funding at any given time. And we appreciate yeah. the funding that we're able to get. <laughs> but uh, we have funding for a policy manager who focuses really on education and mobilizing food systems, practitioners, and stakeholders in those five mid-Atlantic states in our region on the farm bill. And we're specifically interested in the suite of local and regional food systems, as well as um, programs that support sustainable ag and small and mid-sized farmers in the farm bill. It's a ton of programs, maybe uh, 30 or 40 programs. I could be vastly overestimating it, but it's 
it's many, many programs that amount to a very, very tiny fraction of Farm Bill funding overall. Um, Your listeners probably know that the biggest program in the Farm Bill is the food stamp program, also formerly known as Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Um, a lot of people Vice think versa, it's subsidies actually. to big <laughs> It was growers, food stamps first actually, and now it's SNAP. But anyway. Yeah, yeah SNAP <laughs> is the biggest program. And then second to SNAP are, um, a, you know, I don't know the exact order in terms of largest to smallest, but crop insurance, subsidies to growers, um, some of the bigger conservation programs get, a, you know, a bigger chunk of funding. Um, and I don't want to speak to specifically the amount because I don't have that um, information off the top of my head, but I can tell you that the programs that support regionalizing the food system and also support beginning farmers, support really conservation-oriented farming practices, support um, traditionally marginalized and historically underserved farmers like farmers of color, women farmers, those programs get tiny, tiny pots of funding. So uh, I'm a little cynical about what federal um, policy is really going to do for us. And I'm even more cynical with our current leaders. But nonetheless, we still work on this because um, our movement is able, you know, we rely on those pots of funding to help us leverage other funding, whether it's state dollars or private philanthropy dollars um, so it's really important that those programs continue to get funding and continue to um, be advocated for, even though at the end of the day, when you look at how much those programs get compared to the rest of the farm bill, it's it's laughable. Um, yeah. I remember one year that a program called um, uh, ATRA, the it was a it was a hotline for farmers to receive. Um, information to address production issues. I think it was a $3 million budget line and it was axed in the farm bill budget. And at the same time, I had read about um, a military jet that uh, takes off and lands vertically like a rocket instead of having like the long, uh, you know, how planes normally take off. Yeah, didn't need a runway. One of those planes was the same amount of money as the entire budget for the ATRA program. Yeah. One of those planes. So just when you look at like the inequity in federal funding, it's pretty stark. I don't think this is new information for anyone. We don't fund schools. We don't fund a lot of these social welfare programs. We just fund our military. But um, it's still important that we fight for those dollars. Those dollars, as small as they are, go to fund really, really innovative work. On the state level, NISOC has been working to develop and strengthen connections with state agricultural um, commissioners. We participate in the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture annual meetings, and we use those meetings as an opportunity to form relationships with state ag leaders to educate them about the work that our partners do in their states, very innovative work that they do on shoestring budgets um, and how those state leaders can be advocates for these programs and also use federal dollars to leverage additional state dollars. So a lot of federal programs require matching funds, and so that's a place where state governments can come in and support those programs. And we're really lucky in the Northeast, our agriculture commissioners in in our 12-state region, or at least in the 10 states, 10 of the 12 states that, well, in, in the Northeast, our agriculture commissioners do understand local and regional food systems and sustainable agriculture really well. That's kind of uh, how farmers identify more in the Northeast because farms tend to be smaller. We have more specialty crops in the Northeast as opposed to commodity crops, so fruits, vegetables. And and those systems, those production systems do really well under organic and sustainable um, growing systems 
For a variety of reasons, but probably the biggest one is that you can, um, you know, consumers buy raw produce. They don't typically buy like raw commodity crops. Um, right. And so they're not buying soy so, by the, uh, you know, by the uh, hundred by, acre bushel, you know, <laughs> by the tractor right. they're not trailer going load. To their, yeah. They're not going to their groceries. They're buying tomatoes. So there's a lot more interaction that the consumer has with the product. So, um, so anyways, um, we, we do have a lot of opportunity and potential in the Northeast. I think we're really lucky in that regard. And mm-hmm. it is an uphill battle when we talk about Congress and getting things, and, and not just whether the Congress is controlled by Republicans or Democrats. I think our biggest issue with Congress is that for the most part, Congress doesn't understand agriculture. So right. it's our job to educate members of Congress about the importance of supporting these issues that we are talking about on this show. Yeah, right. So what about, um, speaking of, you know, difficulty in uh, getting (laughs) the federal or even local uh, agricultural officials involved in some of your um, concepts, what about uh, how much do you guys work with uh, corporate food entities? So for example, um, I'm thinking about, say, some of the more forward-thinking you know, big food companies, Panera Bread, for example, comes to mind, you know, the Panera lunch chain or whatever you want to call them. Um, They've taken a stand on, you know, sourcing uh, cage-free eggs or, um, you know, buying a certain amount of produce from, you know, within a certain number of mile radius, that kind of thing. Are you able to use uh, your, your own systems to engage with these corporate entities to kind of encourage them to do more purchasing. We were talking about purchasing earlier and how difficult it can be to get, make those changes in the supply uh, streams. So how much do you work with uh, corporations on work on, uh, you know, developing better or different supply chains? We, I, I mean, I think what you said is really important that those entities are really feeding the country and it's important to engage with them if we want to see significant systemic change. So yeah. we don't shy away from that. Uh, not Obviously, not every corporation is interested in that kind of change. Some of them are really the problem. Many of them are really the problem. <laughs> Many of them are the problem and the solution at the same time. Corporations yes. are complex entities with lots of different people. Uh, some of whom are totally on board with what we're trying to do, some of whom don't really care. So we have had support for our annual conference from corporate entities, uh, Cliff Bar, Ben & Jerry's, Organic Valley, um, to name a few, uh, uh-huh. Cabot Cheese, to name a few companies that have supported us. And we've also had representatives from corporations present at our conference on the topics that we are talking about on this show, how to do major supply chain shifts towards sustainability, how to effectively source from farmers, what are some of the barriers. Institutional purchasing is a huge way to shift the system, and a lot of the corporate players that we're talking about are providing food at these institutions like Cisco Um, Aramark, those kinds of entities. So we've had them present at our conference and talk about some of the shifts that we're doing that they're working on to change the uh, food system. I know um, Angela can talk about some of that in in the um, in Jersey City and some of the work they've done. Um, yeah, and we've even gone so far as to try and engage some of the really large players that, even though they are still quite worthy of critique have made changes that we wouldn't necessarily see if, if, for example, if Purdue was not the biggest producer of organic chicken um, and also one of the biggest suppliers to uh, the school, school um, food programs, then, you know, we would not see, we wouldn't see a shift towards organic chicken without a player like Purdue being involved in that. Does that mean that Purdue is perfect or does that mean that Purdue doesn't do other things that are really damaging to the food system? No, of course they still do, but you know, it's, these are complex uh, organizations that we're talking about. So, and even some of the 
companies that we work with that we um, um, are have been founded on the same principles of sustainability and justice that we're talking about have been bought out by larger companies like Ben and Jerry's has uh, been bought out by Unilever. Cabot right. is now owned by Agrimark. And, and I don't want to necessarily malign the companies at the door because I think, like I said, there, there needs to be change happening at all levels, but I'm just making that point to just demonstrate that it's, it's a complicated question that you're asking and there's no easy answers to it. Right. And the um, one other point that I would make, if you don't mind, um, is that um, if we were to only focus on organic small scale agriculture that you can, you know, the products of which you can buy at the farmer's market and small companies that um, are sold at your independent uh, natural food store, there's a very small percentage of the population that can afford to eat like that. I can't afford to eat like that. And right. if I can't, as a white pr person of privilege, can't afford to eat only those kinds of foods, um, you know, there's a lot more people who can afford that way of eating even less. So we have to be looking at this question of affordability alongside these questions of sustainability and production if we want to get to the food system that we're all talking about here. Right, because if it's, it ain't sustainable, if it ain't economical, right? Tree, exactly, uh, Angela, yeah. I want you to uh, talk a little bit, because uh, we're going to have to wrap this up in a couple minutes, and I want you to have a chance to plug the conference. Um, but I just want to ask you about how you work uh, with corporations in Jersey City. Are you able to engage with corporate partners in terms of, uh, you know, better supply chains or uh, changing up, you know, some of their practices to better suit your needs? Um, what 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 has your experience been with uh, working with corporate entities? Uh, the major way that we're engaging with corporate entities um, is around some of our sourcing of and procurement policies. So, for example, right. um, this past year we were uh, doing our contract renewal for our senior lunch programs, um, our Meals on Wheels, as well as our um, congregate lunch program. And so when we released the, well, we moved actually from lowest bid, which I wanted to do. Um, so before it, we had to actually get an ordinance passed by our city council to not have to be the lowest bid. So we can consider all the factors um, of the right. companies. I didn't want us to, to, we can improve the food quality. And then within the RFP, I did include where we, we mentioned that we wanted to see, you know, better sourcing of food, local food, organic food if possible, um, those types of things. So that's one way we're trying to, like, kind of get, get corporations to improve the food that's offered to our seniors and maybe even support um, local farmers um, in, the, in the middle of that. I want to do that with all the different food programs that we um, do if possible. But, again, there's always sort of the issue of how the different procurement policies work for the different programs um, and what yeah. kind of hoops and you have to jump through to make that happen. That's definitely one way we're trying to engage. Also, in terms of I was mentioning we have a whole healthy corner store initiative. So we're working with small corner stores, small business owners, asking them, you know, getting them, giving them some incentives through some grant funds to um, source healthier foods, especially more fruits and vegetables for their um, their stores. And we're hoping at some point to that we could make a connection with a local farmer as well. Although that's always a little bit of a challenge because of the scale is small and is it does it work for the farmer um, and what have you. But that's some things we'd like to do in the future as well to kind of make those different connections. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, work on getting better quality food and supporting the local food system. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. So, uh, ladies, we're going to have to wrap it up, but let's just quickly remind people about uh, the conference that's coming up uh, this coming week. What are your dates? Where is it happening? How do people get uh, involved? Where do they learn more? And will you be live streaming or archiving uh, the speakers? So... Um, our conference is this weekend in Jersey City, uh, November 7th, 8th, and 9th. Registration is actually closed, but we do have one event that people can join us at free of charge. We'll be hosting a seed swap at the Greater Newark Conservancy in Newark on Thursday from 2 to 5. If folks mm -hmm. want more info on that, they can go to our website, Nisa.com nisog.org slash conference and um, otherwise people should come to our conference in Providence, Rhode Island in 2020. It'll be either the first or the third weekend in November. We 
unfortunately will not be live streaming the conference, but we are hoping to record some of our plenary sessions. They will be up on our website if we are able to uh, figure that piece out. Uh, refer to earlier in the interview where I said we were working on this with a pretty small staff. So some yeah. of these fancier <laughs> details often fall through the cracks for us. Um, but yeah, if anyone is listening to this show and they really want to get to at least some aspect of the conference, really encourage you to join us at the seed swap. It's a good way to get your foot in the door, dabble, dabble that toe of that foot in NISOG and not have to make any big financial or time commitment. Cause I know a weekend conference can be a lot for folks to sign up for and then yeah. follow us on Facebook, Twitter, join our email listservs all at nisog.org. So you can find out about our conference next year. That's N E S A W G.org. Great. Thank you so much. And Angela, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciated getting your perspective on this. I'm very interested to hear what work you're doing and uh, Tracy, I hope we'll stay in touch. Good luck with the conference, ladies. Hope it's a huge Thank success. You. It sounds wonderful. I deeply regret that I cannot join you. But uh, next year when it's here in Rhode Island, I surely will be. <laughs> and I can be your media you partner so with Heritage, as a matter of oh, fact. Great. So we'll Excellent. talk about that at another Fabulous. time. <laughs> thank you very much. All and right. thanks to my sponsor. Thanks so much, Katie. Um, and thank you, Angela. I mean, um, Amanda, for uh, engineering this session. Uh, we'll talk to you soon, like next week, folks. Have a good week. Take care now. Great. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>